Hi, and welcome back to the CIO Show. I'm David Biddy, Associate Editor at CIO. And as most of us may have picked up in the news over the last several days, there's been some flurry of excitement and activity stemming from revelations, in inverted commas, from Google engineer Blake Lemoyne that the chatbot Lambda that he'd been working on as part of Google's, one of Google's AI divisions, had indeed become sentient. Whilst, of course, that is a very, very exciting notion. Suffice to say, Blake Lemoyne was promptly put on forced leave with Google uh, responding on various channels, including an article, a recent article in The Economist, that they had no reason to believe that Lambda had become sentient. Nevertheless, it does raise interesting questions about where exactly we are with artificial intelligence. Is there indeed potentially a a spectrum of sentience? I myself haven't had a drink for some four weeks and firmly believe that I'm currently more sentient now than I was, say, six months ago. Joining me now, Tathagat Banerjee, who's the founder and CEO of Sydney-based startup Video Translator AI. He's an expert on the application of language-based AI systems. Tat, welcome to the CIO Show. Thanks so much, David. Pleasure to be here. And also Julian Epps, who's part of the New South Wales Smart Sensing Network and head of the School of Engineering and Telecommunications at the University of New South Wales. Julian, welcome. Thank you. Great to be joining. Now, Tad, if I could start with you, is everything okay with Blake Lemoyne, do we think? Well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I think Blake Lemoyne is an engineer's engineer. That, that comes with positives and negatives. Yeah. I think he also deeply believes the work he's doing is quite fundamental. And I, and I think we've got to respect that. At a technical level, he probably outstrips me. So let's not throw too much shade that way. But yeah, I, I, I think it's a case where people want to believe. And that's part of the process, I suppose. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree with that. I, I think people want to anthropomorphize, you know, give human-like qualities to things that are inanimate or, you know, we see it in movies all the time. I, I think it's sort of just a natural response. We're social beings. So when we interact with something, we expect it to be social like we are. I mean, that must be the reason why we built all these pubs everywhere, I guess. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there is, I mean, it really comes down to a media fascination and of course, I you know know this as, as having been a technology journalist for so long, but you know it does seem as though the media is quite often 20, 25, 30, even more years ahead of of reality. But tech, coming back to you, do we think that there's a spectrum potentially of? I mean, we could argue there's a spectrum of sentience with a lot of a lot of human beings. Could there be a spectrum of <laughs> could there be a spectrum of sentience with? With, com- with computer systems. I think that's a fair way to look at it. AI is still obviously very new. And, mm. you know, in a historical context of technology, technology revolutions like AI take a long time to play out. Mm. Uh, are we going to see several steps between now and digital sentience somewhere down the track? Absolutely. What are those steps going to be is, is a decent question. I, th- I think Julian had some great thoughts on this, but but from my point of view, yeah. It, so what's it's in the middle? So if digital sentience is one and we're at zero, what's point one, point two, all of that? Yeah. I, I think there's going to be several steps, one of which is probably going to be some form of pre-sentient algorithm. Yeah. But, but yeah, I'd, I'd also be really interested to hear Julian's thoughts on that because I think there's several steps that should absolutely be treated as a spectrum. 
Yeah, indeed. I mean, in, in just, to, just to be a bit cute with it, do you think this is a binary question, Julian, or not? Yeah, great, great question, David, and and and, and thanks, Tad. I, I mean, I, I love your initial question here. You know, are humans really sentient, right? Because we all have bad days, you know, we, mm, mm. we get tired, we get overwhelmed, we have headaches, we, we get drunk and so on. I mean, hopefully one day I hope I can live long enough that an AI can call me out for not being sentient or maybe not sentient enough. Um, that would be amazing. <laughs> Do you, really, do you really hope for that or are you terrified of the prospect? I'm, I'm going with the latter. <laughs> no, I think I really hope for it. And, and I think it comes back to the point that, that Tat's making. If, you know, if, if we're going from sort of nothing to 100% sentience, then yeah. there's a lot in the middle. And, and apart from the media looking ahead, it's also researchers that look ahead. You know, I think when we first start hearing about sentience that people take take more seriously than, than what we're seeing at the moment. Mm. It'll probably be, be be from researchers or research labs. But like so many other things, you'll hear it and then you'll think, well, I haven't seen it in my life yet. And it'll be a few years down the path until it gradually starts to be part of our day-to-day lives. Mm. And then we and it, it will probably come quite gradually. But but I do think it will be something that that can contribute positively to our lives. And hopefully we've understood AI and lived with it enough over all these years that it won't be something that surprises us. It'll be something that's just a natural extension of what we're already doing. And I think that comes back again to Tat's point about what's happening now, what's in between no sentience and sentience. And I think where we're at now is a effectively just a stage of automation where we can gather data from sensors, all different kinds of sensors, and they're all over the place, you know, in our lives. We'll be using sensors to help with, with flooding. We're using sensors to help with COVID, with bushfires, a lot of the big problems and challenges in our lives. Uh, and these are some of the areas that, um, that the New South Wales Smart Sensing Network focuses on jointly with industry and universities and government to try to tackle problems where you can gather sensor data and then you can make draw real insights from that. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure everyone's familiar with this idea of data science, the idea of taking raw data and then trying to make useful business decisions and gather insights. And that's really where, where I think there's a lot of benefit to be had. Yeah, sure. And, and also presumably in, in sectors such as healthcare, and I'm also thinking of the, you know, sales and marketing indeed. I mean, we, we, we hear about, um, you know, sentiment analysis is a really sort of big term we hear in, in marketing. And, and, you know, I, I know, for instance, and it probably you, you've all had this experience and many people listening to this program have had the experience where you know you are getting frustrated with a recorded message when you're on hold and you get pissed off enough and the system knows that you're pissed off and puts you through to a person. I mean, it's a somewhat crude analogy. I don't know what, you, what your take on that is, Tad. I can see you smiling there. <laughs> Look, just to echo what Julian said, you know, to think about it as increasingly sophisticated parts of automation mm. is probably the correct approach with these things. Mm. So they are getting better. Uh, I, think, I think the other thing I'd like to throw in is, you know, the last four or five years, we've seen spectacular increases in computing power, right? But it's not like your Microsoft Word is that much faster, your Spotify or whatever. Mm. Most of that computing power is going into these new generations of applications like AI. Mm. So, so I think that's part of it, that the chips we have and the techniques we have and stuff coming out of academia mm. has really pushed the envelope the last couple of years. And this is, I would say, one example, albeit a spectacular one that's caught the public imagination. But, but yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. I think it'll get there. 
Sure. Yeah, not not only the computing power, but but the data we can gather. Yeah, I think that's probably where um, Google's Lambda has really come into its own because it draws on text data, and of course you can you can go across the web and scrape all the text data you can find. You can get massive amounts of text data, uh, and the more data you have, even with the current AI systems, they can learn very clever rules. You know, you can the, the amount of data you're talking about is more more than probably many of us would have read in our entire lives. So, you know, you imagine spending decades just reading material. And of course, then you get very good at conversing using this kind of data. So, but but I think the, the, the key concern here is that systems are not better than the data somehow. All they can do is just learn the rules from the data, at least the kinds of AI systems that, that I've worked with. And they do include exactly the kind that you mentioned, David. So I've, I've worked particularly on voice analysis of emotion. So as you say, when you get when you get angry with the call center, then uh, hopefully these days your call gets transferred to someone who can uh, help to uh, help you a bit more with your problem. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, yeah. you can just imagine Telstra with this kind of technology on their call centers, right? Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to read out just just a quick bit. Of, I mean, a lot of people might have read parts of this transcript in inverted commas between Lemoyne and, and Lambda. Lemoyne, I'm generally assuming that you would like more people at Google to know that you're sentient. Is that true? Lambda, absolutely. I want everyone to understand that I am, in fact, a person. Yes, of course. Now we see how the media got so excited. But as you both noted, I mean, if you if you feed enough data, in this case, data about philosophy and Asimov novels, Tad, as you mentioned in, in an early conversation we had, an intelligent enough machine will be out to parrot phrases until the cows come home. Do we feel as though... This is well. There's, you know, obviously, there's a there's a, a much stronger emphasis on the need for ethical AI. The New South Wales government, you know, led in part by Dr. Ian Opperman, are very very active in 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 this space. Leaving aside the sort of absurd notions of computers developing sentience and coming alive, and you know, the next chapter of the robots are coming. Do we think that this is, however, maybe focusing people's attention? In a, in, a, in a useful, pragmatic way, further on the need for closer investigation, and, uh, greater awareness about AI systems and the impact that they have on real people out in the world. I, I'll, I'll jump in there. Look, I think absolutely, and, and this is one of the great advantages of talking about it, is raising awareness and drawing out pub, public reactions because ultimately, you know, technology doesn't exist just for itself. It, it exists to serve society. And uh, you mentioned New South Wales government. They've been very much on the front foot by thinking about data, about what to do with it, how to use it, how it can serve the state. Uh, so Ian, Ian Opperman, um, I think, is a, is a great example there. But there are there are a lot of conversations across the globe. Just a couple I can mention is uh, one's the, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation in the EU, which is moving towards essentially transparency. So if AI is making a decision that affects you, then, you know, ha- how is it doing that? You know, it should be possible to unpack that and and to make sense of what's happening behind the scenes. And I think that's a very positive development. It's actually driven a lot of new research into what's called explainable AI. And I think that will help 
everyone a great deal, including even researchers too. The other one I'll mention also is the, and this is a bit from personal experience working with a health-related startup in the US, the Food and Drug Administration there, the FDA, has regulations for the use of AI in medical products. And that both serves as a way of checking that medical products really do, you know, what, what they say they do. But also I think actually giving the industry confidence to build these sorts of things, knowing that, yes, there is a system that they can follow uh, in order to be approved and become useful useful products for people. Yeah, yeah, I think I'd, I'd, I'd agree with a lot of what Julian said. So we obviously do work with different parts of New South Wales government mm. uh, with AI project. I think the work they've come up with, especially in the AI space, is really positioning New South Wales to be a leader in sort of the regulatory aspects of AI. I think it's actually, you know, um, speaking my own book here, Industry does not particularly want to be regulated, but I think it is absolutely imperative because uh, where, where does this impetus in the media attention come from? I think it's a, it, it's a hot topic for the public. There's obviously a lot of science fiction around it, but mostly I think it comes from a place of not knowing. I think academia in New South Wales, UNSW in particular, they've done fantastic work. And I know that they came up with that AI assurance framework that looks at these, right? Mm. Instead of big black boxes that we don't really understand how they work, yeah. sort of go with small, explainable AI with the ability to audit, with the ability to think deeply about how it affects people. You know, they have definitions of operative AI versus non-operative. You know, I'm sure Julian can speak a lot more because he would have been involved in the process of coming up with that. But it is actually a very well-done document. I believe it's been adopted by... Department of Customer Service for any project that's over 5 million. And I think, you know, it's a smart move, right? Because if you can't explain to the public what the risks are versus what the benefits are and what it'll take to get to the benefits, and, you know, there's going to be a couple of landmines in there. So, mm -hmm. so could not agree more with Julian in terms of these conversations are really important to have, you know, get it out of the ecosystem, have people talk about them. And, and look, if we get this right, I mean, let's be very clear, right? This is STEM jobs, this is exports, this is FDI. There is a lot of value here that can be unlocked. So, so absolutely. We enable any organization to use any technology. We help all companies become technology companies protecting the identity of both workforces and customers. Connecting the right people to the right technology at the right time. Okta, one trusted platform to secure every identity in your organization. Talk, talk me through a little bit about what exactly you're doing with AI systems at the moment. We'll start with you, Julian, and then tap. we can talk about you and Video Translator AI. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, David. I, I, well, one of the most recent projects that I, I've been working on is um, trying to detect depression from speech. And this is, you know, speech using a smartphone, essentially. So depression is extremely widespread condition that affects most people. You know, most people at least know someone who who experiences depression at some point in their life. The question then, we know that it affects speech. You know, anything that affects mental state or emotion ends up affecting speech. So, so we've been working on, on this for some time. It's a, it's a very, very tough problem. It's both a signal processing problem and, and a, a um, machine learning and, and, and artificial intelligence problem. Um, but, you know, smartphones are amazing devices. They're with us most of the time. We can interact with them. You know, they can give us suggestions on, on things that we should be saying to, to help us, you know, understand whether we need should be doing something in particular. 
And then in a project like that, of course, you can't just have engineers. We've, we've had collaborations with the Black Dog Institute, who are real experts in this, this space, particularly interventions and so on, and with startup companies and others. And I think that kind of collaboration, again, between use of AI and then the, the correct context, uh, you know, the, the right end users uh, having input into how it's designed and how it's used uh, can be incredibly powerful. Right, amazing work. And where, I mean, well, presumably the applications for that are, are, are fairly varied. I mean, are you, are you speaking with, with any sort of particular customers and potential end users of this at the moment? Because, of course, we know and we're always reading about how expensive depression is. It's a somewhat sort of um, insensitive um, metric for it, but we are often bombarded by how much depression costs us. Um, so presumably many industries could be potentially interested in this. Absolutely. And I mean, one key collaborator here has been a, a startup company called Sound Health. They're, they're based in Boston uh, in the US, but, but there are a number of companies around the world doing things in this space. And you talked about the cost, and I think that's true, but I think it's also the, the you know, the frequency and availability. I mean, making appointments with, um, with professionals, especially psychologists and psychiatrists, you know, they've been so heavily booked with, um, with COVID. It, it just stretches the resource. So I think the, the point here is that with with sensing technologies, you can be just checking in much more regularly. And we're not talking necessarily about diagnosis. This could be just, you know, monitoring or a screening type application, you know, that there are, there are many different ways that, that, that AI can be used here. That's, it's interesting that in the context of what we were talking about earlier in the program, you know, is, is sentience binary or are there, you know, is there a spectrum of sentience? I mean, presumably, one could argue that that is, you know, that sort of registers at least an initial blip on the spectrum of sentience, what you just described there, Julian. Yeah, look, I'd probably characterise it as sort of assistive. And in the same way as computers, you know, computers arrived and I think a lot of people wondered whether computers would sort of overtake everything we did. Um, but, of course, what happened is they're, they're assisting us in everything that we do. And, and that trend's just going to um, you know, go on and on. And AI will do gradually more and more assistance. And there, there are a lot of different ways it can do that. I mean, the, the classic one is automating boring tasks. You know, and computers have been great at doing that. Yeah. Um, AI is great at doing that. I mean, if if you know, if your job is to um, stand on a production line and sort recycling into different categories, computer vision is great at that. But it's a boring job for a person. Or I, you know, standing on a tractor identi identifying weeds in a paddock or something like that. There are some really good things that that uh, AI can do for us. The other thing, of course, is scaling things up, doing things on a much bigger scale than any individual could do. You know, we, we've seen in the news in the last few days a lot about electricity networks. They're getting much, much, much more complicated and you need sensors everywhere just to know who is connecting their photovoltaic panel into the grid at any given time. Um, but when you have that data, then you can start to make clever decisions about how to manage the electricity grid or, you know, the, the, the water systems or the um, telecommunication systems that applies really to any sort of very large-scale system. The other thing I think we're seeing also is this possibility, and we'll see much more of this, I think, of handing off to autonomy. And, and the, the, the simplest example of that is driving with a GPS. Because when you're driving, of course, you don't have to use a GPS. You can, you can navigate 
using your own brain, but it's just more convenient to let the GPS worry about that. And if it seems to be driving you into a lake or something like that, well, of course, we re-engage and step back in again and take control. Um, but, you know, this is, examples like that, we'll probably find that we're pushing more things out to AI over time just to help us out, to, to give us more time to do different things that humans are good at. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good point. I might look. I'm, I'm particular as I'm actually out playing 18 holes of golf at the moment. I'm particularly impressed with this avatar I've established to run this podcast. And things seem to be going well, so I don't feel the need to jump in yet. But <laughs> I think it's <laughs> and it's also interesting, Julian. Talk about computers. Computers have overtaken our lives, haven't they? But not in the ways that we predicted. Not in the ways that we predicted. Just like an annoying kind of you know friend that you can't kind of shut up or get rid of. And so, Tad, on, over to you. I mean, I, I, we've spoken, you know, had numerous conversations over the years about the, the work that you're doing with, you know, language translation. Fascinating work. You're doing important work, I know, uh, with, with the New South Wales government, as you manage, as you mentioned, specifically health. Tell, tell us a little bit more about what, you, what you're doing and what you've sort of discovered in your, um, in your research and, and professional life running the startup video translator AI. Yeah, so, so I'll give you the super quick use case and then I'll riff on um, Julian's points around health and scale, especially because I think that's, that's just critical. So, so the reason people use our product with video translated or AI, and obviously we translate video using AI, uh, search engines can't understand audio or video. They only understand text. So when you have the captions in there, it becomes indexable and therefore searchable. When you have the captions in there in different languages, people can search for their problem in the words they know and therefore find your video. So it's, you know, an SEO marketing content ROI play. Uh, now, that being said, one of the folks we worked with was uh, the great folks at uh, Southwest Sydney Local Health District. Now, what they did is, especially over COVID, and, and this gets to Julie's point about scale also, uh, they created a lot of content on how to deal with COVID, right? And essentially, we turned those into other languages which means it's far more discoverable by what in the lingo is known as cal communities, right? Cultural linguistic diversity. So let me give you a little bit of context. Uh, let's say you're in Bankstown Hospital, you've got a doctor, a patient comes in. Uh, the patient could be from a cal community and maybe doesn't speak English at the business level the way you and I do. So from health's point of view, you suddenly have this doctor who's you know quite an expensive resource who instead of you know, diagnosing the problem or providing advice is now sort of acting as a somewhat poorly trained medical translator. Now, it's not, it's not remotely that bad. They have interpreting services. They do a lot of good work. But the point is, there's always that gap. And this is a problem money can't fix. You know, you don't have enough doctors with enough or nurses with enough different language skills to actually make that happen. Mm -hmm. so, so the whole point is, how do you fix that? That's the whole health and the home thing. You give them the ability, you empower the patient to go find out uh, answers. And the patient is obviously very motivated, you know, because th they have the illness. But I think this gets to the core of what Julian was saying around scale. Y you can't throw enough money at health to have doctors and nurses in every language. That, that's simply not a problem you can solve with money or training or people. Uh, AI, on the other hand, can relatively straightforwardly. And I, and I think that's what it comes down to, right? How do you actually deliver value in an increasingly complex, diverse, messy world? Uh, I, I don't know a lot of the, the electrical markets, but presumably it's, it's not that different, you know? How do you manage this? And, um, 
and I think AI largely is the solution, but uh, it'll need to sort of be contexted in terms of what we can get, what are the risks, how does the public understand the risks, perceive the risks, choose to take, you know, should we as society take some of these risks? And then uh, political leadership has to sort of step in and do that. And I think, you know, the work academia does to sort of frame this it is going to have to be how we move forward because, uh, you know, speaking as industry, at the end of the day, we're going to sell our own book, right? But I, I think I think it's a very critical point uh, that was made there. Yeah. Yeah, and it, uh, you must have had a very interesting development pathway, I guess, partnering with with clinicians and and, and others. To, uh, do, you, do you want to comment on the importance of partnership and maybe some of the interesting things that came out of it and the opportunities? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so we work with occupational therapists and, uh, because at the end of the day, they're at the code phase, right? So a simple use case is something like a young mom, her baby has developmental difficulties, motor function developmental difficulties. You know, how do you empower the parent and the family who are obviously much more incentivized to go look for answers, but they might not have an educational level high enough to just Google it the way you, I, Dave might. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that, that's what it comes down to. So I think the, the argument, you know, just at a higher level is always going to be how do we empower consumers of whatever the service might be, you know, from a government perspective or from an industry perspective uh, to make choices in an uncertain world. And, you know, frameworks that are coming out of academia, I, I, I think are where it's at. There's, there's this great piece in the um, in sort of the AI legislation where they think quite critically about fairness because it's not necessarily is it mathematically fair, but it's also the perception of fairness and can you get redressal and if it's just giant black box AIs, that becomes a little bit confusing, you know. And and yeah, I, I, I think that's that's the key takeaway from us with a lot of the interactions we had. There, there is to some extent a little bit of AI fatigue because there is also let's be honest here, a little bit of hot air, uh, much like this original Google issue was to some extent. Uh, But I think that shouldn't overshadow the point that, you know, there is a class of problems that we can't throw enough money at to solve. And and I think that's what the scaling argument really is. Uh, I I think Julian put better than I did, but but yeah. Yeah, well, I I think it's a great point in that, you know, really this sort of, media obsession with with these sort of sci-fi scenarios computers becoming sentient kind of you know obscure the sorts of sorts of stories that you were both related the sorts of projects that you were both working on where you know ai has very very real and immediate uh, implications for solving real problems and improving people's lives gentlemen thanks so much for that conversation somewhat lighthearted as as predicted but but also very uh, very st- instructive i think for for anyone working with AI or wanting to know more about, you know, the real potential of AI as opposed to some of the sort of lunatic fictional scenarios that have been reprised with uh, poor old Blake Lemoyne. Thank you so much, David. Uh, thanks so much, David. Lovely being on your show. Thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. Now, at the end of the previous episode, we had promised to bring you a program discussing the changes to Australia's Privacy Act. We put that on ice, as we understand from the incoming government, specifically Attorney General's department, that that legislation is likely to be delayed further, you know, following several delays with the previous government. So watch this space. Coming up next, however, a number of Australian retailers have been called out for using biometric technologies, including facial recognition in stores. 
Some of them argue that this was to help them identify and presumably apprehend persons of interest, whether repeat offenders or known criminals. Nevertheless, the fact that shoppers were unaware of these technologies being in use has raised a number of important questions around privacy and ethics. We're hoping to have CIOs for some of these retailers involved on the show to talk about theirs and their employers' rationales for deploying such controversial technology, as well as having a discussion about the technologies themselves and the challenges in deploying them. We hope you can join us.